So this morning we're actually going to be talking a little bit about um, kind of the words in that song. That, that This phrase, that's a very key phrase that we see um, in the Bible, and it's something that as a pastor, um, you want all of your people to be able to say, um, be very genuine when they say it, to be able to look to God and say, Thy will be done, and have a heart that truly, truly believes that with everything that they are. And this morning, um, we're going to look a little bit at this, and um, typical to what it is that we do here on a Sunday morning, we're going to look at the person of Jesus Christ in a way we're kind of continuing um, what Pastor Ben's been studying um, from John chapter 6. Um, we're seeing a lot about um, Jesus speaking to the people, and he talked, um, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, I know we've been in John chapter 6 for a while. There's like 70 verses in there, and he's, I mean, he's going through um, probably as, as fast as you can. There's just so much in there. But we just left off with Jesus Christ telling the people that he is the true bread from heaven, saying, you're over here talking about um, how Moses was so great and how he gave the people manna in, in the wilderness and all of this, and you're so happy and that's what you want from me. But if you haven't noticed yet, all of them are dead. Your fathers, the ones that it is that you're wanting and everything that you're looking to, they're dead. But I am the true bread from heaven, the one who truly gives life and life everlasting. And so we're seeing um, a continuation of this in a way here. Um, our text is going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Um, I love the book of Hebrews, um, partially because there's always that intrigue of who it is that wrote it. If we were to kind of canvas each and every one of you, we might get a diff couple different answers. Um, I'm not going to tell you uh, my, my preference or who it is that I believe wrote it, because I believe that God and, and the Spirit um, wrote this. And as far as the, the human author, I'm not sure... I kind of like, maybe, maybe I will tell you, I kind of like Barnabas on this. I just think it's fun. And saying the name Barnabas is fun. Everyone just say Barnabas right now. Barnabas. Doesn't that feel good? <laughs> it does. It does feel good. Uh, but I'm really excited about this text uh, because what we're going to be looking at is this picture of Christ as the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. The reason that we have any hope, the reason for anything that it is that we can be praising God for and to be able to sing about in the songs that we sang about this morning singing praise to him is because Christ is the perfect sacrifice. And what we're going to see is that he was the perfect sacrifice in verse 10, once for all. Christ is the perfect sacrifice once and for all. In churches, it's easy to, uh, to be able to look at different things in the Bible. And when I was uh, in school and learning about things, there are certain things that you're told you can kind of preach about, but maybe don't focus on so much because as far as um, being politically correct or as far as being appealing, it's not something that's the most appealing to preach about. And this is, this is one of these ideas. We're going to actually see the difference here between um, what it is that was happening with the old sacrificial system and now with this new covenant. But we're also going to be talking about Christ and we're going to actually be talking about the crucifixion of Christ. Now, being in school and hearing you can talk about the crucifixion, but don't really, because it's not that appealing of a visual for people. That astounds me that we would take one of the core pieces of Scripture and say, well, mention it, but don't really talk about it. Don't talk about blood, because blood freaks people out. So if you can avoid talking about blood, that's fine. Talk about Christ's example rather than his blood. Now, we talk about his example, we're seeing his example as we're going through this study, but if you've noticed, at no point does Pastor Ben ever exclude the blood of Christ, the sacrificial death 
the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. At no point does he sacrifice that picture just to simply talk about the example. So we see these things, and we could say there's a difference between uh, preaching Christ and preaching Christ crucified, isn't there? There's a huge difference. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, we see Paul writing, and he says, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ. But he doesn't end right there. What does he say right after that? And him crucified. The crucifixion is so critical here because comparing uh, Christ's blood and Christ's example, we talk about the example, we see him as an example, we follow that example, but we have to talk about his blood, the perfect sacrifice, because Christ's example isn't what atoned for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. This is why we sing praises to Christ and not Paul. Paul, great example, but you know what Paul didn't do? Paul did not fulfill the substitutionary atonement on the cross. He did not shed his blood for our sin. Jesus Christ did, and this is what is so important and what so sets him apart. And when we look at this, and it's an incredible opportunity for all of us as believers to say, I've already recognized this. I recognize Christ's blood. I understand the shedding of his blood on the cross and what it did for me, and I fully trust and I fully believe in that and praise God for that. And we're going to get to do that again this morning. And how incredible it is to remember this. So for the next, I would say 30 minutes, but that's probably a little conservative on my end. I want us to look to Christ this morning. For as long as it takes, for as long as we're here, as, as Lord wills, we will be looking. And I want you to turn your eyes to Christ. Because what we're going to be doing, obviously we're in the book of Hebrews, so there's going to be a contrast with, I mean, Hebrews, right? Writing to Hebrews, to Jews, we're going to see a contrast of the law and the old system versus what Christ did, which is always great, because we look at the old system and everything was, what can I do to appease God? How can I do things? How can I, through my works, be made righteous? And we're going to see how dramatically different that is. So as we turn our eyes to Jesus, it's my hope that we have a response at the beginning that we see in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Peter looks upon Jesus, and does he say, wow, God? You are so holy, I'm glad we're best friends. You and I, we're just the same. No, but he looks upon Christ and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This incredible response of seeing God in front of him, the word becoming flesh, the actual Son of God in front of him, he's confronted with holiness and recognizes immediately his sinful state dramatically understanding how different he is from this person who is in front of him. And so as we look at this text uh, this morning, and we're going to be looking at a few other ones as well, we're going to not only recognize our standing before a holy and just God, that's the bad news, right? But we're also going to see kind of like Romans 1 does, we get some bad news, but then we get some good news, so we can truly understand how great the good news is. We understand that God doesn't just look upon us and we don't just recognize our sinfulness and we're left floundering saying, well, well, now what? I'm sinful man. I'm deserving of your wrath and your punishment. But now what do I do? But we're going to see that, that he's given us an answer. Um, before we get into the, to the text, let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you, um, just as we do every week, to be able to, to come to this place where we have a place to meet and to be able to worship and to sing praises to you, to open up your word to to be able to see you clearly, to see here in the book of Hebrews the incredibly perfect sacrifice 
that you gave through your son. And God, we, we recognize our sinfulness. We fully understand how incredibly unworthy we are of this sacrifice. And God, that's what makes grace so incredible, is that we are so undeserving of it. But you are so loving. You are so kind. And God, as we look to this sacrifice, we, we truly see to recognize and to see through this text that there is nothing we could have done to appease our, our, your wrath against the sin, but that you would just apply the sacrifice. Father, we just pray through this text that you would be able to um, be magnified and glorified this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 18. Some of the portions we'll move through a little more quickly than others. Um, but starting off in verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So we see a little bit, we're seeing them contrasting the law. Again, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish people who are, who are sitting there and either A, they were fully um, submissive to all of the, Jer the Jewish ceremonial laws. They were still looking everything um, based upon Moses. And again, Jesus had come, he had lived, he had died, resurrected, all of these things. And the author is telling them, look, you're so looking back to this old system, which was unsatisfactory, by the way, and we're going to see that theme a lot. Christ has already come. Everything that you've learned in the prophets has actually been fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. Now look to him. Stop looking back at everything else that it was talking about. And we see this word shadow. This is refer it's, a, it's a pale shadow that the, holds the idea of portraying something real, but we're not themselves real. I don't have to explain to every one of you what a shadow is. I think we all know. Some of you make shadow puppets on the wall. That's cool. Um, my son is afraid of shadows, by the way. Because there's a book, just side note, Jake and the Neverland Pirates. There's a book where they do shadows. It scares him. Okay, So don't get that book. But... That's not the main takeaway for the morning, but could be. So this idea, it's a shadow portraying something real, but they are not themselves real. When we see a shadow or a silhouette, we see it's kind of a pale picture, but it's not the real thing. If you try to grab a shadow, there's actually nothing there. It's merely showing of something else. Then we see that it's a shadow of things to come and not the very image. So image meaning the exact replica. So it's a shadow of things to come. So everything that he's writing to them, and he's saying, this law that you hold so dear, this law that it is that you are basically worshiping at this time, that you've made the basis for everything, was simply a shadow of things to come. It itself was not the actual thing. It was never meant to be. And then we see this word perfect at the end, carrying this idea of bringing to completion. So in verse 1, for the law having a shadow of things to come and not the very image of the things, notice what he, what he says about the law, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So we see in the very first verse, the law that you're holding so dear can never make you perfect. It can never bring to completion what it is that God has for you. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Amen. The law, the sacrifices, everything that they would continuously do, 
each and every day, over and over and over, every year, was inadequate. So he's reminding them, and he's basically saying, look, you want to hold so firm to these things, but it is not sufficient. It is not adequate for access to God. There's an estimate that about 300,000 lambs would be slain each year during Passover within a week. 300,000 lambs every year. Blood would just be running. Basically, it's a river of blood. Imagine that, 300,000. Not in total while they were doing these sacrifices since the beginning of time, but each year. Because all the time, they'd have to go back and sacrifice. Oh, sinned again. Got to go back and appease God with another sacrifice. Oh, did it again. That just, just left. The priest just saw me leave. Now I got to go back and do this again. And verse 4 makes it extremely clear. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Why were they inadequate? Because verse 1 tells us they were simply shadows. This, this animal sacrifice, the sacrificial system, merely a shadow of good things to come. It was not the end goal. There's no substance. They'd keep doing it, doing it over and over, piling shadows on top of another. It's kind of like multiplying by zero. Those of you who are really good at math, what does that get you to? Zero, right? In the end, you can multiply any amount of numbers by zero, but once that zero's in there, Everything goes right back. It's empty. There's nothing. So we see in verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Does it say anything about there is remission of sins through these sacrifices? Does it say that there's a removal of them and that you're forgiven of your sins because you sacrificed this lamb on Passover? No, it says simply you were reminded of your sinful state, of the sin that you made against God, and it serves simply as a reminder. In the end of verse 2, if it had worked, they would have stopped because their conscience would have been clean. They would have understood their standing with God is better. But, but nothing changed. It was a temporary removal of God's judgment. There, and we look at this and we can say, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't think many of you sacrifice bulls and lambs in your off day. Some of you may have a job where animals may be harmed, or maybe that's how you live. But again, I don't think any of you are making these um, animal sacrifices to God to appease him anymore. But that doesn't mean that there's not a simple application here, because you see, everything that they were doing, it was set up for them to outwardly show and to outwardly display a way to try to appease God simply through actions. They were, it was simply an external motivation of, well, I know I have to do this to appease God. Because we have to understand the context of all these people knew, um, and if you read through the prophets, there's some crazy stuff in there, but these people every day were living in constant fear of God's judgment. And I'll tell you, they had every right to be in, living in fear of that. We look at the prophets and we see uh, their, their primary job was to basically serve as watchmen for the people of that time, to look and to be able to see God's judgment is coming. So what was their message? Repent from your sins and perhaps judgment will relent. There was always this message of repentance. And we look at prophecy and we always think prophecy is simply to talk about what's coming. Kind of like the fortune telling idea. Who am I going to marry? Does she really love me? Am I going to get a good job? Where am I going to live? 
and we look at it in this way. But prophecy just as much was to say, look, God is going to bring judgment upon our people unless we repent. And we look at it and we see times where there could be repentance and there is no judgment because ultimately the goal was repentance. Continuously throughout the Bible, we even see Jesus talking about this, saying to repent from your sins. We're going to look at a verse where he explicitly says this later. But when we're dealing with the law and if we're seeking to be justified by our works, we're always going to come up empty. Every single time. And a lot of us have tried this before. We've tried to say, if I go to church uh, three weeks out of four, that's an improvement. That's better. God is going to be happier with me. If I'm nicer to every person just a little bit more, then God, I'll be justified because of the way that I'm doing my life. We hear all the time people saying, well, I don't really necessarily believe in God, but I think I'm a good person, right? So I think I'll end up in heaven. All the time we see this idea, but if we're consistently trying to be justified and, made, and we're trying to please God simply with our works, we're multiplying by zero. We're just piling things on top of one another. It's not going to happen. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh... So it's saying, okay, if if the blood of these bulls and goats is good enough to do this, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So if you you think that that's going to be good enough, how much more is what Christ did going to be good for you? How much more is that going to be giving you a clear conscience. Because these people were always living in fear. They were always living in this fear of this condemnation and of judgment from God. Always wondering, when's the next time that God's going to um, bring in, that an enemy is going to come and they're going to take us over? We look at biblical history, Jerusalem was taken over like a whole bunch of times. Like, these, these people had a very rough time. Um, if you're in the Bible study on Wednesday nights with Pastor Ben, you're going to see, it seems like every other week, like, people of Israel doing something stupid and being taken over. Like, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And we see this, and all of this is going on, but when you look at that, they're saying, how much more, how much more is Christ going to do? All of this, this whole system that they had set up, there was never any heart change. It was simply kind of kicking a can down the road. Everything was external. If I'm justified by my works, I'm never really sure where I stand with God. Because my standing with God is only as is only good as long as I never sin again. And how many of us could say, man, I've gone about 10 to 12 years without sinning, and that's been great. See, that, that's just not the way that it is, right? So they were repeatedly doing this. Being a priest in this time was a full-time job. They had rotations. They had an incredible system set up because it was a 24-hour thing. People always coming in every time sacrifices needing to be made. There's no clear conscience under the law. There's no clear conscience when we're trying to please God through what it is that we do. And this is what Hebrews chapter 9 that we just read is talking about. How much more is the work of Christ going to do for your conscience? Verse 5 through 8. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. This is Jesus speaking. 
Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written to me, to do thy will, O God. You see that theme again? To do thy will. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings, and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. This is a quotation back from Psalm uh, chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And what we're seeing is simply, in short, just to summarize this, God does not desire these external displays. God does not just desire for us to do things to make him happy, to please him. Because everything that it is that we're reading in the Old Testament, this is what the people had to do. Everything here in the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to these people saying, it is not that way. Christ has come. He has fulfilled all of these things. Even Christ himself, again, he's quoting back to what the Psalms say. The people um, that, were, that he's writing to understood this in the, this interaction. Um, also, this little section gives a great uh, support for a pre-incarnate Christ, doesn't it? This, we're seeing kind of an interaction here. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. He's prepared a body because Christ understands that from the beginning, this animal sacrifice isn't the way that it's supposed to be. When you look at Psalm 40, um, it's written that thou hast dug up an ear for me. Kind of is a interesting. I, I'm not trying to dig up ears. Um, but, it, but it gives you this incredible picture, right, of God physically crafting a body. And we, all, we understand that God and, and Christ being a creator. So we see all of this going on. And the, the whole point of this as he's writing to them is to say, look, the sacrificial system wasn't, wasn't one, it's inadequate. Two, it was never the plan. And three, it's done away with because there's already been a sacrifice. And these people are simply seeking to to uh, pay attention to the sacrifice rather than to follow what it is that the Bible is actually telling them to do, what the scriptures say. Uh, go to Isaiah chapter 1, just really quickly. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, we, we see a little bit of this again. To what per this is This is the Isaiah and it's speaking about um, Judah and their sacrifices, and they were doing it with an empty heart. They were doing it simply to do it. They were just doing it out of ritual and out of practice and out of ceremony. Um, no heart, no actual genuine affection for what it is that they were doing. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and of fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats, and then slide down to verse 15. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God is saying to them, these empty sacrifices that you're offering to me, the blood of these bulls and these goats, I am full of it. I am sick of them because they're empty. They are completely empty. You're doing it just because. How many of us would like a relationship where an individual does something for us just because? We would hate that, right? 
It's simply one of what it is that you can give to me. And so what we're going to see here, this is where it takes the turn. He's setting the table as he's writing to the Hebrews and saying, all of this stuff that you're so beholden to, do away with it. There's some, this is all that's been fulfilled. We don't need to keep sacrificing these animals. We don't need to keep doing these things. And then we get to verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Do we see what's going on here? He's making it very clear. Christ came to take away, taking away the first and establishing the second. This old covenant, the sacrificial system, that has ceased, and now there is a second, the new covenant. And there is still a sacrifice, though, isn't there? But the, pro- the difference is that there's only one. And in a moment, we're going to see a comparison. Speaking about uh, this, this idea of, of Christ and the, the perfect sacrifice, John MacArthur said this, and I love this because it puts it in a very, uh, very good picture. Again, speaking about how Christ, uh, his motivation of doing the will of the Father. MacArthur says, Many have died a martyr. No other has or could have taken upon himself the sins of the world. No one else has been or could have been so utterly repulsed at the prospect. And no one else has been or ever could have been so obedient. I absolutely love that quote because it puts everything that we understand about how incredible that sacrifice of Christ is in a nice little bow. And I like nice little bows. Many have died a martyr. We look at the disciples, many of them died as martyrs. Even today, people, Christians being killed all over, all over the globe, right? We, we see about this, depending on where it is that you're getting your news, you're going to see this thing consistently happening. When we talk about, uh, about these lambs being slaughtered and 300,000 blood running in the streets, the very same thing is happening to Christians all around the world today. Blood running through streets, dying as martyrs. But the difference is, none of them None of us could have taken the sins of the world and placed it upon ourselves and been a sacrificial death for the sins of the world. And also, no one else could have been or has been so utterly repulsed at the prospect. Perfect, sinless, holy Son of God in Jesus Christ. Completely holy, having nothing, can have nothing to do with sin. The, the very thought of becoming sin and being the curse, repulsed him. Imagine that, the way that God feels about sin, Jesus, his son, God himself is going to become this very sin that he so much hates. And as we read Romans 1, the very wrath of God is against all of this unrighteousness. He is going to become that very thing. Have we thought of it in that way? Because I always looked at it and said, wow, he took all of that sin, what a guy. He is becoming the very thing that he hates and he detests. And it's so contrary to his nature to become sin. Just understanding the magnitude of what that is, is incredible. But as MacArthur notes at the end of the quotation, and no one else has been or could have been so obedient. And even with that, we see him in the garden saying, God, if this would pass from me, please let it. But, What does he say? Thy will be done. 
all the way through, becoming the very thing that he hates, becoming sin, becoming the curse of sin, taking all of this punishment, dying a martyr's death on the cross, being the curse, being so obedient the whole way through. And that to me is incredible. And are you thankful that Christ did that? Because those of us who believe in his sacrifice and who have believed in it, and we truly understand the magnitude of what that means to see Christ on the cross becoming sin for us, the very thing that each and every day we continue to show is so necessary. Do we truly understand that? And does that cause us to look at God and say, God, I want to turn away from my sin. I believe in you. I I want to believe in you. I understand what it is that you have done for me, and I recognize this. And he's writing to these people in Hebrews, some who have either not even thought about it or intellectually they're right on the cusp, right? They understand what it is that Christ did. They understand that he died. Some of them are still up in the air about it. Verse 10, by wit, by the which, again, talking about Christ, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We are completely and permanently set apart unto God if we have trusted in the offering of his body. This picture that it is that we're seeing, and this idea of him becoming sin, becoming the curse, that those of us who, have, who believe upon that are completely set apart, permanently, by the way. Again, contrast that with the sacrificial system. Oh, I messed up again. God is not going to be pleased. I need to go and do this thing. I never know where I stand. But verse 10 is telling us, through the, those, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We are sanctified. This, this idea about it is so incredible when you break down the language a little bit. It's a present participle with a finite verb. And in short, before going into all of it, this idea of permanent, so it's continual. So not only are you sanctified on that day, but you will continue to be sanctified forever and ever. A continual process of sanctification, of continuing to be set apart, continuing in holiness. And it's God's will for us to be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, a lot of us always wonder, what is the will of God? Here's an interesting verse. It says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Continue to become like me. Continue to draw to me. Continue to trust in the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And that's an incredible ending to verse 10 because as we mentioned, this whole system was you've got to keep going back. You've got to keep going back. And this is Christ died once for all. It's done. Amen. Verse 11 and 12, we continue to see even more contrast. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That is incredible. Sat down. These two verses give... Uh, Four different contrasts. We'll just point them out real quick. We see in verse 11, And every priest standeth daily. Every priest. There were many priests. Full-time job, a whole bunch of them, consistently rotating through, could hardly keep up. We contrast with many priests to one high priest in Jesus Christ. 
We contrast this with many sacrifices. Daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices, sacrifices over and over and over. Verse 12, talking about Christ, one sacrifice of himself. We see repeated offerings, verse 11, one offering for all time, and verse 12. And perhaps one of the more incredible things that should bring all of us some encouragement and some hope, and if you're a guy that likes the movies, just the, that's awesome. You know how you see in movies, like a super warrior come in, and he makes like an awesome entrance, or he just like slays somebody in a really cool way, and he just sits down and is like, yeah, I did that. I get really excited about those moments. Some of you are concealing your faces because your wife's like, I don't watch those movies either. But you know you watch Gladiator. Don't lie. Verse 11, what does it say about the priest? Every priest standeth daily. Always standing. Couldn't sit down. Not allowed to sit down. It's not just that they didn't have time. They also weren't allowed to. Verse 12, but Christ sat down. And where is he seated? Right hand of God. The right hand of the Father. He sits down because his work is done. The priest had to consistently stand because there was always someone coming back in. There's always something to be done. Christ sacrificed himself one time for all and sat down at the right hand of God and said, I'm done. My work is finished. How incredible is that? Do we recognize that? He also sits because God is satisfied with the sacrifice. God is looking upon his son and is saying, well done. Well done. It is, you're done. Satisfied. Boom. Done. Third reason, Christ, with his Father, is the sovereign ruler over all his enemies. He sits, and we look, now look at verse 13. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. You ever get down and worry if things are ever going to get better? There's a promise that God has given us that things will end up getting better. It may not be in our time, but it's in God's time. And we see what happens as, God, as Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, enemies being made his footstool. Yes. Incredible sovereign ruler in Jesus Christ, where he returns and all of the enemies who have tried to come against him will be defeated. Satan thought that killing Jesus was going to be good enough, didn't he? He thought he was slick by getting people to come in to try to get Jesus killed, saying, if, he's, if he dies, I'm going to win. God can't do anything against this. But the very thing that Satan sought to do to destroy him is the one thing that has brought salvation to each and every one of us who have trusted in that offering. Isn't that just an incredible picture? Like, everything about this, and the more that you study, and I love it that I'm so young right now, because hopefully that means I have a whole lot of years of study left. Because each and every week that I'm studying things, I just see so much more. Um, and I've talked to many of you about this. It just causes me to ask a whole lot more questions. Um, for every answer, there's another four or five questions. In a way, it drives me nuts, too. Um, but just incredible that Satan, seeking to destroy Jesus, helped and aided in fulfilling the very sacrifice that God had planned from the very beginning. Jesus was a lamb to die from the very beginning, right? From the very beginning of the world. It wasn't something that shifted where God is looking upon the world and is saying, wow, maybe this didn't go the way I thought it should have, so I'm going to go ahead and change my mind. From the very beginning, it was all of this. Again, verse 1, shadows, the law, sacrifices, shadows of Christ. And he's writing to them and he's saying, everything that you've known and believed in from the very beginning, from the prophets and everything that Moses has taught, this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was done. It's fulfilled. It's, he's seated. Verse 14, 
For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Again, it's present. It's progressive. You have been sanctified if you have believed. We'll go through these last couple of verses pretty quickly. Verse 15, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he has said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Again, we're seeing a connection back to Jeremiah chapter 31, this idea of writing the law in their hearts. I love verses 17 and 18. Basically, I love all of this. I've probably said that about every verse. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. No more. It's been done. Jesus was the offering. He died, didn't stay dead. He's currently living seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come and to make His enemies His footstool. And as we look at this, we're seeing that the work of the sacrifice is absolutely finished. Are you thankful for that? Because if we can't be thankful for this, if we, if we were to do what it is that some of us may have been taught and as I'm in school to say, well, don't talk about Christ on the cross, don't talk about His blood, blood sounds weird, then there's no salvation at all. I have nothing to be thankful for outside of salvation. Like Paul said, I desire to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. The only thing that matters, the only thing, is Christ and Him crucified. Without His blood, there is no salvation. There is no hope that any of us have. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. There's nothing without Christ and His blood. So we look at this and we see that all of this work is done. He's writing to them and he's pleading with them, please, please understand that all of this, all of the scriptures that you've known, everything that you've memorized, everything you've believed has been fulfilled. And he uses all of their information, the same text, the same words from the prophets to show that there is no heresy, there's no blasphemy. He's saying, Every, we agree on everything. I'm simply trying to show to you it is Jesus Christ who came and who did all of these things. Luke chapter 24, this is where we see Jesus talking. This is after the crucifixion. This is before he's, he's appeared to everyone, and this is just prior to, the ascent, to his ascension. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 46. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and in the Prophets and in the Psalms, we mentioned all of those already this morning, concerning what? Me. Concerning me. Everything in the Old Testament, everything that it is that you know, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, the Psalms, all of it was about me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Because he's telling them they didn't understand. On the road to Emmaus, he says, had you understood the scriptures? He, he speaks to the Pharisees, had you understood Moses, had you actually obeyed or listened to Moses, you would understand that I am the fulfillment of this. Verse 46, and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name 
among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He encapsulates basically the whole ministry in this of saying, all of the Old Testament is talking about me, the fulfillment of everything. It's me coming and doing this. The, the perfect sacrifice, verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. And so the goal of everything, and as we see with Hebrews, everything is coming back to this, this salvation, this glorious and perfect salvation that's promised in the Old Covenant, the promise given to Jeremiah in chapter 31 of a new covenant to come has been purchased in the new through the person of Jesus Christ. The salvation that is, that everyone has longed for, it's been fulfilled through Christ and what it is that he did on the cross. The perfect sacrifice. And that simply nothing else is satisfactory. The salvation that it is that we experience, that we enjoy, is not just from Christ's example, but through Christ and him crucified. And it's something that is so incredible that each and every one of us understand that. And many of us have come to this point, and many of us have understood it and accepted it. And we're living in this, in this place of sanctification where we've been set apart, made holy by God, continuing to be sanctified to the day of completion. And what incredible joy it's going to be to be able to reign with Christ forever, to where there's not even a need for a temple because the glory of God is everywhere. His very presence is all it is that we desire. An incredible hope that we have through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that, that through your Son, grace and truth came. We thank you that, that your Son came as the, the perfect sacrifice, the only way for salvation, as he makes clear in John 14. Father, we, we were so unworthy of your love at any point in our lives. We're, we're so unworthy to be here this morning. We're so unworthy of being given the opportunity to praise you and to, to share your word and to be able to uh, meet with a community of believers and to be able to even have conversations about you afterwards. God, we're so unworthy of having the opportunity to do that. But God, we are so thankful for your grace. We are so thankful that your son became the curse, that your son place sin upon his shoulders, becoming sin, becoming the very thing that you despise so much, the very thing that your wrath is against, becoming that for our sins. And as we look, look to you and we turn to you, recognizing our, our state and our understanding that, that we are sinful before a very holy God, but also as we look and see what it is that Christ has done on the cross, that, that there's no need for sacrifice and there's no need for righteousness to be sought through works, but that we experience grace, we experience mercy, and that we are justified, made righteous by our faith in the offering of your Son once and for all. Father, it's my hope that, that those of us who have, who have accepted and who have understood and who have received the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, that we would truly look to see that I'm in remembrance and understanding our place and to be to be encouraged with the fact that we are sanctified we are set apart that positionally uh, you, you look upon us and you see your son you look and see what it is that he did and you look and you see the holiness of your son and father we're so thankful for the the incredible encouragement and this hope that we have of being able to reign with you in glory Amen. to be able to sing praises to you saying holy 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 is the lord god almighty where you receive all of the praise that you are so justly deserving of. Father, we are so thankful for that this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.